0: A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. is my six month anniversary of doing this podcast. So thank you for all of you that are listening. It has been so much fun. I've been loving every moment of it. And I was hoping that by my first anniversary, like my first full year, to have about 10 regular listeners and maybe about 20 downloads per episode. And according to Apple, which just to day I looked at, which is about two weeks before you're actually hearing this, they tell me that I have 721 engaged listeners and about 1,100 somewhat regular listeners. My most popular episode so far has, of course, been Taylor's part one. And really surprisingly, not quite as many people listen to part two. So my second most popular was actually Meryl Gleddy and Dave Rogers. And if you're interested, my least popular was the Hub Mall Heist out of Edmonton, which tells me that either robbery kind of heists are maybe not as interesting to you, or you're not fans of murder by guns. So let me know if you have a theory on why that one didn't maybe spark as much interest. Now on to today's case. I have a case for you today from way over the pond in Germany I wanted to do a story from someplace really different this week but I also wanted to do one that wasn't overdone and I actually picked Germany because there aren't a lot of podcast stories done here on German cases there's lots from the UK and Australia um, and of course the US but not Germany so one of the first things that I do when I'm doing a non-Canadian case is I, I put it into the search bar in Apple just to see how many shows have done it. And if there's, you know, quite a few or some of the really big ones have done it, then I don't bother. So the first one I found was the Hinterkaifleck murders. And it turns out every single podcast has done one. And it is a really interesting unsolved case from 1922. So if you are interested, you can literally pick any of your favorite podcasts other than mine and they will likely have an episode on that one. So then I came across the story that I'm going to do today. Um, And it has actually been done a lot, but in German and on German podcasts. So not so much on Canadian or US ones and not in English. So I'm hoping that this is one that you haven't heard from or that you haven't heard before. And I do have one listener in Germany so thank you to whoever you are um, and I hope that I do this case justice for you because I'm pretty sure you probably know it. I also really hope that I pronounce some of the places and names correctly for you. This is the murder of Ursula Hermann. Ursula Herman was a really bubbly girl from Bavaria, Germany. She was born in 1971 just like myself. She played piano, did gymnastics, and was the youngest of four siblings. She was really quite adored by her community. She had um, like, she had her hair cut in a short little blonde bob. She had this super positive spirit, really high energy. Her father was a teacher and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. And in those days, they would have still referred to her as a housewife. And it's really interesting, but I could not find one article or any coverage on this case that actually names Ursula's parents or her other siblings other than her one older brother, Michael, who was 18 at the time. And the only reason that Michael's named is because he has a really important part in this story, which I'm going to get to later. And no, it's not that he did it. I believe the reason that they've never been named is because they have, re- they have actually requested the media has not at- to not name them because they had a really difficult time um, when this case happened. Ursula and her family lived on the lakeside of Lake Ammersee, which sits between the town of Schondorf and Etching. And what separates the two towns is a very lush and dense forest. Now although the area they lived which close to the etching side was a very wealthy area the hermans had only been able to afford to build there because her great-grand ursula's great-grandfather had purchased like pasture land there for his animals a number of decades before so they were not a wealthy family but they weren't poor either just very average middle class family very well respected in the community On the afternoon of September 15, 1981, which was the first day of school, 10-year-old Ursula came home from school. She practiced her piano, and then she headed off to Schondorf for her gymnastics class. To get there, she rode her bike through the forest along the lakeside paths. After her gymnastics class was over, she went to her cousin's house, which was also in Schondorf, and had dinner with her cousin's family. At 7.20, her mum called her aunt and told her it was time for Ursula to come home because it was going to get dark soon. That ride home should have taken her about 10 minutes. She had been wearing dark green corded pants, like corduroy pants, a gray cardigan, and reddish-brown sandals. A half an hour later, she still wasn't home, so her mum called her sister's house again, and she told her that Ursula had left 25 minutes ago. So they both knew something was wrong. So Ursula's father went into the forest from the etching side, and her uncle went in from the Schondorf side. When they met in the middle without finding her, they called in neighbors, police, and the local firemen to help with the search. They scoured the lake, the bush, all the undergrowth, and they brought in search dogs, which led them away from the lake and into the middle of the brush. About 20 meters from the pathway, they found Ursula's discarded red bike. Ursula was nowhere to be found. By this time, it was dark and it started to rain. So first thing in the morning, they started the search again, this time using a helicopter, police boats, and divers. Ursula went missing on a Tuesday night. On the Thursday, so about 36 hours later, the Herman's phone rang. There was at first silence, and then an eerie jingle played, which they recognized from the traffic bulletins on the Bray 3 radio station, and then more silence, and then the caller hung up. Three more calls exactly the same came in over a period of only a couple hours. The police stationed themselves in the home and recorded the calls. I know that's super creepy, isn't it? The next day, her mom went to get the mail and there was a letter addressed to Ursula's dad marked urgent. And it was literally your stereotypical ransom note, complete with cutout words from magazines. It said in broken German, we kidnapped your daughter. If you ever want to see your daughter alive again, then pay two million Marks ransom and it said that they would phone and use a jingle, just say you will pay or not pay. If you call the police or do not pay, we will kill your daughter. The kidnapper, or kidnappers, weren't the greatest at thinking things all the way through, though, because they kind of forgot that the mail takes a day or two, and they had already started calling. So when the phone rang that afternoon and the jingle sounded, Ursula's mother agreed to pay the ransom. She also asked for proof of life. What were her daughter's nicknames for her two stuffed animals? When the kidnappers did not reply, she became frantic. So that would have been the Saturday, I believe. On the Monday, the 21st of September, another letter arrived with some instructions that were very specific, but not the important parts. The kidnappers wanted the money to be paid using 100 Dushmark bills packed in a suitcase. It was to be delivered by Ursula's father, who was to drive alone in a yellow Fiat 600 going no faster than 90 kilometers an hour. But they kind of forgot to say where they were supposed to go. A neighbor raised part of the ransom and the state agreed to cover the rest. Now, when they stay, the state was covering the rest. I don't know if that means like the police department or if it means like the government. So they had the money ready and were willing to pay to get their daughter back. But then nothing. No more phone calls. No letters. Just nothing. After another two weeks passed with nothing, the police decided to search the forest again. More than 100 officers were assembled with 10 cadaver dogs. The wood was divided into four parts and each quarter into small grids. So the teams were searching every grid one by one using metal rods to probe the ground. So this would be sort of one of those shoulder to shoulder, like search every single inch of the ground. By the fourth day of searching, Ursula had been missing for 19 days. At 9.30 a.m. and in a tiny sort of clearing, about 800 meters away from the lake path, one of the officers had struck something solid when he was sort of probing at the soil. Another policeman rushed over and after wiping away the leaves and scraping through a layer of sort of dirt and clay on top, discovered a brown blanket that was covering a wooden board. So when he took the blanket off, he found a second board, which appeared to be the lid to a box. Sort of reference, they've used like a small coffee table as reference for like the size of it. It was painted green and locked from the top with seven sliding bolts. So using a shovel, he forced the lid open and peered in. And there was Ursula. Her body was cold and lifeless. And the officer that pulled her out actually wept when he had her in his arms. Ursula's dad, when they told him that they had found her, he just kept asking if she had been hurt in any way before she was killed. And an autopsy concluded that Ursula had died probably within 30 minutes to five hours of being buried. Um, and there was no sign of a struggle. There was no sign that she had even moved uh, inside the box, so they had figured that she was likely drugged beforehand, and then they for some reason they think that it was possibly nitrous oxide that was used. It appeared that the kidnappers had planned to keep her alive. The box, which was one point four meters deep, was fitted with a shelf and a seat that doubled as a toilet. And it had actually been stocked with three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, six large chocolate bars, four packets of, like, cookies, and two packs of gum. It also contained this bizarre library of 21 different books and comics, everything from Donald Duck comics to westerns, romance novels, and thrillers. Um... So it was. they found it interesting that like, well, what would a 10-year-old be reading romance novels and thrillers for? So it was just sort of a jumbled mix of, of different books in there. But it was obviously the purpose was to keep her entertained uh, while she was in there. So they did believe that the purpose was to keep her alive. There was also a light and a portable radio that was turned to that uh, Brayerns 3, the same station that the broadcast of the traffic jingle had come from. And then to allow Ursula to breathe, the box had been built with this ventilation system that was made from like plastic plumbing pipes, uh, which extended to up past the ground level. But whoever had designed it had sort of failed to think about the fact that without some kind of machine to circulate the air, the oxygen was going to quickly run out, which was, of course, Ursula's cause of death. The police believed that there had to be more than one kidnapper because, um, well, the size of the weight of the box, which is kind of like a coffin, uh, was about 60 kilograms. It would have probably had needed at least two people to carry it into the woods. Um, And they must have known the forest area very well because they had chosen an extremely remote spot and had um, been able to avoid the attention while, you know, digging the hole and... and, um, And they also would have had to hack paths through the dense brush. The media just completely hounded the Hermans. And at the funeral, Ursula's brother, Michael, he actually had a photographer shoved a camera right in his face and he knocked the cameraman and his camera to the ground. The the family was, was just distraught and Ursula's mom never really recovered from it. The police offered a 30,000 Dushmark. I really don't know how to say Dushmark. Is that how you say it? Reward for information. And it's like tips just started pouring in. And then one of the names that came up really early was Werner Mazurik. And he was at that time, he was 31, living with his wife. And he had two children. It was just a few hundred meters from where the Hermans lived. Uh, he was a car mechanic who had left school at 15 and ran his own TV repair business. And so he was really good with his hands. Um, he was also quite tall, very imposing figure. He was a beer drinker, uh, quick tempered, not very well liked at all in etching. Um, he was also at that time heavily in debt and he owed the bank quite a bit of money. So he, they figured he kind of had a bit of a motive. So he was questioned um, about a week after Ursula's body was found. And at first he couldn't initially recall where he had been on the night that Ursula had gone missing. But 24 hours later then, he was a- he was able to provide a kind of an alibi. He said that he'd been playing a board game. Um, he'd been playing that board game Risk with his wife and a couple of friends. So they searched his home and... Um, the workshop that he used, and they couldn't find anything that linked him to the crime. Um, Later that same month, the forensics team that examined the box found a fingerprint on a piece of duct tape. So they were really hopeful that this was going to be the breakthrough that they needed. Um, They tried to match it to everybody, including um, Missouri, uh, but they, nothing matched. The police still though, suspected that Missouri was involved Um, At the end of January 1982, they actually arrested him with two of his friends and interrogated them for, actually for several days before finally releasing them. About a month after that, one of Werner's acquaintances was questioned. His name was Klaus. Now, I'm not even going to try and say his last name because it's like puff, puff, fluff, fluff, flinging, or puff, puff, finger, puff finger, Klaus. Um, now he was an unemployed mechanic and had a drinking problem. His landlord that he owed money to had told the police that just in the a few days, maybe a week or so before the abduction of, of Ursula, he had seen him um, driving his moped carrying a shovel that was sort of strapped to the side. Now, Klaus initially, of course, said, no, I'm completely innocent. But after the second day, he started to to say, like, well, what if I know something? And um, he told them that Werner had asked him to dig a hole in the forest in early September of 1981, uh, promising payment of um, a thousand douche marks and a new color TV. Um, Klaus said that he had dug the hole and had later seen a box embedded inside of it so convinced that they have completely cracked the case the detectives drove Klaus back to the forest area um, between Etching and Schondorf and asked him to sort of lead us to this burial site and um, much to their dismay he suddenly was he said I don't know he didn't know where it was so on the way back to the station he said in the back of the police car, quote, I am revoking this confession. It's not true what I said, end quote. And then during the, they questioned him 10 more times after that, and he still didn't change his story. He said that he was not involved. Werner was not involved. So by the summer of 1982, the lead detective who had been working that case was replaced with somebody new. And the new police team found a bit more evidence um, as far as the kidnappers and what they had done. And one of the things they found was this wire that had been strung through the trees along the lakeside path, which they think was serving as like an alert system during the time that she was abducted. So um, what they figure is that one of the kidnappers would wait by the wire and when, you know while the other one was hiding the box or near the the site where they had buried her he, if somebody came along he would just touch the wire and it would ring some kind of buzzer or light up a, the light bulb in the box or something like that but they weren't able to trace it to anybody so the case conti- like the case went cold in around 2005 so this is many years later that because it was probably one of the biggest cold cases at the time, it was looked into again. So they had kind of hoped like prosecutors had hoped that the development of DNA over the last 20 years might actually help solve the case. So they had quite a bit of evidence from the original investigation. They had the the ransom notes, the box um, and on the box, they found numerous hairs Um, They were able to build DNA profiles from that. uh, And they were actually able to find DNA profiles of actually what they figured were several people, but they just needed somebody to match those DNA samples to which they hadn't found. Now this part I found really interesting. So in Germany, because her death had not been actually deemed a a murder, it was a kidnapping that had gone wrong in that case because it's not actually cons- classified as a murder there's a 30 year statute of limitations on it and i believe that in 2005 it was there was maybe only 5 more years left before it was just going to become a um a non case so they're kind of working against the clock at this point so they of course went back to all these case files uh, and they came- they came back to Klaus, thought well, maybe we should look at him again, and it turned out that he actually had passed away, but Werner, Maorich was still alive um he was living with his wife, I'm not sure if it was the same wife he was with at that time, but it was he was living with his wife in north the north part of Germany. He was running a boat accessories business with a friend of his. In 2007, Missouri was placed under surveillance. And I think they kind of do the same kind of Mr. Big Stings that we do here in Canada. They had an undercover officer try to befriend him. And they planted recording devices in his car, in his house, probably in his shop. And his house was searched again. He was asked to provide a saliva sample. He didn't match any of the genetic profiles or the DNA profiles that they had found. So the only thing that they could find was an old style tape recorder. You know, the the real to real ones that maybe you've seen them in movies or something. Like they're really old looking, very 70s. And in the calls that were made to Ursula's parents... Um, the kid where the kidnappers had played that jingle, they thought that this must be the recorder. So they were they got a sound expert to examine it and determine that, um, nope, this is the same one. It was the one to use the calls. So So the other thing that's really interesting, so in May of 2008, um, the prosecutors notified Ursula's parents, who were still alive at that time, that they were going to be arresting this Werner. And what's interesting, again, is that in the German legal system they have there, that if you're a relative of somebody who has been a victim of a, um, a homicide, you actually get to be like you're asked to be sort of part of the prosecution team. And you have a right to look at all of the evidence. You can um, request specific witnesses you can ask questions of the judge it's it's really interesting and of course we don't have anything remotely close to that here now Ursula's parents they didn't want to be. they just didn't want to participate they didn't want to go through it again going through all the details of their their daughter's death so but Ursula's brother Michael who at this time was now around early 40s he was teaching religion and music at a girls um high school in um Augsburg he decided that he was going to be a part of it and like he completely immersed himself in this case the trial for Werner Missouri, started in February of 2009 he was actually arrested with his wife who was also put on trial as an accessory to the crime Um, that to me, sounded strange because she hadn't done anything. Oh, she wasn't even mentioned in any of the the reports or anything that she had been involved in any way. So it was interesting that they had arrested her too. And at that time, he was quoted as saying, quote, "I know I was certainly not a good citizen, sometimes rude, and will see many attempts to portray me as a bad person. But I have had nothing to do with this act." And of course, the prosecution didn't have any trouble finding stories that sort of painted uh, Werner as not a great guy. Um, I think his daughter testified against him. He'd had a few little scrapes with the law. There was a fraud conviction in 2004 for falsifying some documents. And then his wife at the time, so his first wife testified that he had come back from the Oktoberfest beer festival and, And had found that their family dog, Susie, had knocked over the garbage bin in the kitchen, of course made a big mess. He grabbed the dog and locked the dog in the basement freezer. So the next day, when his wife went to get some meat or something, found Susie in there frozen to death. And she, of course, soon divorced him after that. But when he was confronted with it, Werner said he had punished the pet, quote, with exile to Siberia, end quote. But most of what, everything that they had was completely circumstantial evidence. And he had a motive that, you know, maybe he needed some money because he was in debt at the time. Because he had a workshop, he had the means to secretly build this box. Um, oh, they found They had found a piece of leather in the the construction of the box that had been cut from a belt that they felt was from somebody rather large. And of course he had a beer belly. He was a very large man. So they figured it was his. They bugged his his house. Um, And the only thing that they could find on any of the recorded phone calls was him and an old friend that he had from Etching had been discussing the case and they talked about the statute of limitations. Um, But I don't think that that's... I don't, I wouldn't call that a smoking gun. I mean, if I was under investigation for something that had statute of limitations, I'd probably be talking about it too. So I don't think that was important. And then, of course, they honed in on the original confession from Klaus that said that he had dug the hole for him. They claimed that his original confession had actually been fairly accurate in a number of ways, that he had been able to describe the burial site um, the size of the the forest, the dimensions of the hole, the conditions of the soil at the time, but um, now the tape recorder, of course, was that most important piece. He says that he had purchased it only actually a couple of weeks before that at a flea market while he was on um, a holiday with his wife. Um, but that he couldn't prove who had sold it to him and nobody at the market could remember him or or selling them the recorder. Now, they had a state's expert whose specialty was actually in phonetics rather than an actual audio, audio recording said that in the original recording's uh, from the ransom calls that you could hear a couple of clicking sounds in the background, which they felt were the buttons on the tape recorder being pressed during the recording of that jingle. So when she pressed the buttons on this tape recorder, she said it matched the sound and that there were some other subtle characteristics of the recording that corresponded to the machine that she was working on so that she said it was probable that it was the same the same recorder. In the meantime, while this all this trial is going on, before the trial had actually started, Mike, the brother Michael had requested, of course, full access to all of the case files, everything that they had. And he literally immersed himself in this. He just, he stayed up late at night working on it. And he was really troubled about the whole Klaus and Werner thing. He just didn't think that it had, it fit. The... Confession that Klaus had done; he hadn't even signed it. The the investigator who did it had just wrote it down from memory, and it was a number of weeks later. There was no DNA proof connecting either Klaus or Werner to any of or to any of the evidence that was um, from the crime scene. And then, of course, there was this tape recorder. So now, remember, Michael had a background because he was teaching music. He had a background in acoustics and sound engineering. And he couldn't understand how she had matched this tape recorder because there's no way it could be definitively linked, especially all these years later. Because they figure the kidnappers, even if they had used that to record the jingle from the radio, they would still have to transfer that recording to like a more portable device because the calls to the Herman house were actually made from payphones. And of course, the acoustic environment's, in the the phone booth that Herman's home would have influenced what they heard and recorded like so there's no way that she could have made any kind of match. He became really like a skeptical that Werner was guilty and he just he just could not let it go. Um, so he just felt at that point I think his parents had passed away. he, he felt he believed it he owed it to the family during that trial. Werner sent a letter to Michael um, for to s- just basically say that he thought that, you know, maybe it sounds like we're kind of on the same side. And so Michael replied, quote, I was surprised to receive a letter from you because it is certainly clear to you that despite all the doubts I have about your guilt, I have re- considerable reservations about you as a person. If you are not the culprit then I wish for more new insights and that you can be rehabilitated. If you are the culprit, go to hell, end quote. Werner was convicted based on the trial. In March 2010, he was found guilty, sentenced to life imprisonment. So he was convicted. His wife was acquitted. Six months after the trial, so this would have been late 2010, Michael actually began to start to notice that he was having this really high frequency noise in his one of his ears and at night it would just it would wake him up and keep him up and he'd been experiencing it since it started kind of during the end near the end of the trial and he was diagnosed with tinnitus he was told that it was could be stress related which of course would be the trial so because he was getting really skeptical about Werner's guilt he came up with this kind of interesting plan so in 2013 He filed a civil claim seeking 20,000 euros in damages from Werner for causing his tinnitus. And it was the reason why this is interesting is because it was actually just like a bit of a ruse. He figured that Werner's going to defend the case. Um, that he was wrongfully convicted, so he couldn't be responsible for his tinnitus because he didn't cause the stress and everything that he had had to go through that caused the tinnitus. And then the court would, of course, have to reconsider all the facts in the criminal trial. At the very least, get closer to the truth. He wanted a a second trial because he didn't believe, not necessarily, I don't think he didn't believe that Werner was guilty so much as he didn't feel that there had been a, a fair trial, that it hadn't been... Um, based on evidence. So in August of 2018, the civil case did end, and the court actually ordered Werner to pay Michael 7,000 euros for causing his tinnitus. So it was a victory that he won the case, but it was also a loss because in order to arrive at the decision, the judges had agreed that um, Werner had been guilty. In an open letter to the Bavarian state and the media, Michael wrote, quote, "My sister's fate has stayed with me for 37 years and to this day it is unclear who actually who was actually responsible for her death. Could it be that the Augsburg legal system is not actually interested in solving the case of Ursula Herman, the death of my little sister? If the court decides to close the proverbial lid, it should be well aware that one cannot shut the truth away." End quote. Michael believed that the wire was one of the key pieces of evidence that could actually be used to help identify the real kidnappers. The boarding school, all the the students at the boarding school that was near there that Ursula went to also knew that forest very well. None of them were fingerprinted at the time of the investigation. And another piece of evidence that he's kind of honing in on is there was a impression on the the paper of one of the ransom notes that under like sort of you know how they do impressions of what was written on the page in front of it they found uh, a mathematical probability tree and it was the same kind that they were teaching to the teenagers in that school They also found one of the comic books, one of the main characters in one of the comic books that was found in there actually drove a Fiat 600, the car that that Ursula's father was told to drive uh, because it wasn't the type of car that he normally drove. And interestingly, a letter was sent to some of the big media outlets there in November of 2020 claiming to have been responsible for the crime. And it was... It was a like computer typed letter, but hand signed from somebody that was a high school student at Ursula's school at the time in nineteen eighty one. He said that he committed the crime with a couple of other friends. The letter was actually was received in November of 2020, but it wasn't released until March of twenty twenty one but it has never been verified. The case is considered closed at this point. So Werner's only hope of freedom, it seems at this point, would be early parole, which I believe he is eligible to apply for in 2023. And that was the kidnapping and murder of Ursula Herman. Please join me again for another case, likely a Canadian one. Thanks so much for listening.